Chapter 13 of Napoleon, A Short Biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. Napoleon, A Short Biography by R. M. Johnston. Chapter 13 the Austrian marriage and the campaign of Russia. Dynastic question. Napoleon marries Maria Luisa. Jealousy of Russia. Causes for war. Preparations. Campaign of Russia. Borodino. Moscow. The retreat. Having concluded the treaty of Schönbrunn with Austria, Napoleon left Vienna for France, but he returned in a far different mood to that in which he had returned from Tilsit in 1807. Then an unclouded series of successes lay behind him, and before him arose great schemes that were to lead to the glorious day when Great Britain should be at his feet. But now his preoccupations were on a smaller scale, for the security of his own throne shared his thoughts with the overthrow of his hated enemy. There were many reasons for the emperor's dissatisfaction. The defeat of Austria had proved a harder task than ever before. At Essling, the Archduke Charles had claimed a victory. At Wagram, he had withdrawn his army from the field virtually intact. In Spain, too, a British general was proving more than a match for the best marshals of the empire, while from one end of the peninsula to the other insurrection blazed and King Joseph could barely maintain himself at Madrid. Greatest of all his anxieties was the dynastic question, whose was to be the reversion of the imperial throne? The idea had long been working in his head. The question had now become an acute one. Perhaps an incident that occurred during his stay at Vienna drove him finally and reluctantly to an act that he had first contemplated on his return from Egypt in 1799. While the peace negotiations were progressing, a German student named Stapps approached the emperor as he was inspecting the guards in the court of the palace of Schönbrunn. His movements were suspicious. He was arrested, and on him was found a knife that could leave no doubt as to his intentions. Brought before Napoleon, he avowed with perfect composure his intention of killing him as an enemy of the human race, and on the emperor's asking him what he would do if he were released, he replied phlegmatically that he would take the earliest opportunity of assassinating him. This courageous student was necessarily shot but he had evoked before the emperor the spectre of revenge that underlaid German opinion, and Napoleon was profoundly affected by the incident. On his return to France his resolve was fixed. He had decided that there must be a direct heir to the empire, and he promptly announced her fate to Josephine. After a painful scene she consented to all that was asked of her, and a divorce was decided on. The Pope refusing his consent, a somewhat irregular form was gone through by the complacence of a committee of cardinals, but had Napoleon pronounced the decree of his own will and authority, it is not likely that any one would have dared question its efficacy. 
In the meanwhile it was necessary to find a suitable consort for the Emperor and the alliance between France and Russia immediately suggested the Grand Duchess Anna, sister of the Tsar. Informal overtures were made at St. Petersburg. They met with doubtful answers. It appeared possible that an eventual no would be the result, and this was an affront Napoleon could not bear to face. Just at this delicate moment Austrian diplomacy, now under the wary guidance of Count Metternich, succeeded in suggesting the Archduchess Maria Luisa, who in point of age was far more suitable than the young Russian princess. Metternich, whom the Emperor had liked as ambassador, promptly seized the opportunity, placed it beyond doubt that a favourable reply would be given to any proposal made, and secured this enormous politico-matrimonial prize for his master's daughter. The rapid conduct of the preliminaries, the pomp and magnificence of the ceremonies, the effusions of the French and Austrian courts, the gratification of Napoleon with his Habsburg bride, the amicable married life that ensued, all these are matters of which the details can find no space here. It is the grim reverse of the medal that must be dwelt on, the political aspects of the marriage, the so-called reasons of state that made the bringing of one child into existence the cause for the destruction of hundreds of thousands of lives. Metternich had come into power at the moment when Austria had touched her lowest point. He was determined to restore her fortunes, and to do that he saw clearly that she must not again bear the brunt of war, but, leaving that to others, quietly prepare to throw in her sword when next the scale balanced and her intervention might be decisive. He followed up the French marriage closely, anxious to profit, clearly perceiving that France must lean either on Russia or on Austria, and already convinced that the Tsar and Napoleon were fast drifting apart. Two new and grave causes of disagreement had arisen between France and Russia as a consequence of the War of 1809. One was the sudden manner in which Napoleon had dropped the proposal for marrying the Grand Duchess Anna. The other was of an even more serious character. At the Peace of 1807, partly to reward the Poles who had long served France, partly to obtain a political support in the Northeast, Napoleon had formed of Prussian Poland the Grand Duchy of Warsaw under the rule of his ally, the King of Saxony. This was virtually reconstituting Polish independence and caused great uneasiness to the Tsar. When the War of 1809 broke out, Napoleon called on Alexander as his ally to place an army in the field. This the Tsar did, but in an inefficient way that did nothing to help Napoleon's operations. The Poles of the Grand Duchy, however, ably led by Poniatowski, made a strong diversion in Galicia, and Napoleon duly rewarded them with a large slice of Austrian Poland when peace was signed after Wagram. Nothing could have been more calculated to alarm and alienate the Tsar, who was now declaredly offended at the course of French policy. The year 1810 was not old before it was common report that a war between the two great empires must surely ensue, 
and it appears that from that date both Napoleon and Alexander began quietly to make preparations for the gigantic struggle all felt was coming. But in its essential aspect this great war arose from Napoleon's policy of the continental blockade. For a brief moment it looked as though that policy might meet with success. In 1810 British funds fell to 65, commercial ruin appeared imminent, bread was at famine prices, the Tory cabinet was falling to pieces. Wellington's generalship probably saved his country from a humiliating peace. Driven from Spain by Masséna, he fell back on the lines of Torres Vedras in front of Lisbon and there successfully stopped the French advance to the sea. His foresight and strategy had turned the scale in the Spanish War, for from this moment the Anglo-Spanish position grew steadily stronger, and it may be said with little exaggeration that the lines of Torres Vedras mark one of the great turning points in Napoleonic history. For it was essentially the commercial necessities of the war against Great Britain that led to the rupture between France and Russia in 1812. Even in northern Germany, Notwithstanding armies of custom-house officers, repressive and inquisitive laws, wholesale burnings and destroyings, British goods still found a market, though at exorbitant rates. The Baltic trade was still carried on under the neutral flag, and Russia, in defiance of the continued representations of the French ambassador, did not defend herself very strenuously against the importation of British luxuries. The court party at St. Petersburg constantly opposed the French policy, and Alexander was easily convinced that he must arm and prepare to struggle against Napoleon's dictation. In the spring of 1811 both empires were openly preparing for war, yet in Paris all appeared prosperous. Never had Napoleon enjoyed the splendor of reigning as he did at this period, and his last wish was gratified when, on the 20th of March, 1811, the Empress Maria Luisa gave birth to a son whom he named King of Rome. The title of this ill-fated child, taken from what was now the second city of the empire, was reminiscent of the King of the Romans, the appointed successor to the crown of the Germanic Roman Empire that Napoleon had destroyed. In the early part of 1812 came the long-expected crisis in the relations of France and Russia. Napoleon summoned Alexander to carry out his obligations and exclude British commerce. Elusive answers were returned, and the troops received marching orders. Napoleon had often declared that an invasion of Russia was a foolhardy undertaking, and that he would never, as Charles XII had, lead an army to destruction in the steppes. He had always disliked the enterprise, and it was only the alternative of seeing the continental blockade policy fail that drove him into it. His preparations were of the most elaborate nature. The army he assembled was gigantic. In 1811, the movement of these masses from France, Germany, and Italy towards Poland and Russia had begun. 
Every little detail of organization and especially of transport received the Emperor's personal attention. Austria was summoned to affirm her alliance by placing an army in the field, and sent 30,000 men to the frontier under Schwarzenberg. This body formed Napoleon's extreme right. Unfortunate Prussia was compelled at the point of the sword also to furnish a body of troops which, together with a French corps under the command of Marshal MacDonald, was to operate along the Baltic and form the extreme left. In the centre came the vast hosts that Napoleon in person was to lead. The old corps of the Grande Armée, under such leaders as Davoust, Ney, Oudinot, Saint-Cyr, Bessières, Junot, Victor. The massed cavalry, chasseurs, lancers, dragoons, and cuirassiers under the King of Naples. The Westphalians under King Jérôme. The Italians under Prince Eugène. The Poles under Poniatowski. The Saxons, the Bavarians, the magnificent divisions of the old and young guard, with its veteran bodies of grenadiers and voltigeurs and its superb horse artillery and cavalry, all made up a central army of more than 300,000 men. Including the flanking armies and the supports that followed the main columns, it is calculated that over 500,000 men marched into Russia that summer. As had been the case in 1807, it was well on in June before active operations became possible. Napoleon and Maria Louisa made a short stay at Dresden, capital of their ally the King of Saxony. There they met the Emperor and Empress of Austria, with many of the princes of Germany. Thence the Emperor proceeded to join his army whose columns were already converging on the Niemen. The French army crossed that river, nearly 1,000 miles from the frontiers of France, on the 24th of June, 1812. Napoleon hoped to be opposed, to crush the Russian generals with his superior numbers, and to conclude a prompt peace without advancing far. But in all this he was disappointed. The advance of the French was opposed only by Cossacks or light cavalry, the Russians showed no sign of effective resistance. On the 28th, Napoleon reached Vilna, and so disinclined was he to plunge further into the half-desert country beyond that he stayed there three weeks hoping for some arrangement. But Alexander gave no sign. He had long foreseen the situation that now faced him, and both he and his advisers believed that Napoleon could be defeated. More than 200,000 Russians were in the field, but the Tsar had decided not to rely on his troops alone, but also on the nature of his country. From the Niemen to Moscow was a distance of some 700 miles through thinly peopled steppes in which supplies could only be obtained during the summer months. Moscow was nearly 2,000 miles from Paris, and between them lay hostile Europe, was it possible that Napoleon could maintain himself there? Such was the Tsar's reasoned attitude, and the Russian armies were given orders not to engage, but to fall back before the French advance until a favorable opportunity should arise. Finding the occupation of Vilna fruitless, Napoleon advanced into the interior of Russia. 
and after an action with the enemy's rear guard occupied Smolensk on the 18th of August. His line was now extremely extended. His transport arrangements had broken down. The army was much disorganized. Yet, against the feeling of all the marshals, he decided that the war must be brought to a conclusion by a decisive move and ordered the advance to Moscow. The Tsar now departed from his policy of retreat, for it was impossible and impolitic to resist the clamor of the Russian army to fight. It was decided to make a stand before Moscow, and Kutuzov selected a strong position barring the road at Borodino on the Moskva. Here on the 7th of September the two armies met, the French numbering rather more, the Russians rather less than 120,000 men. The fighting was of a desperate character and might have ended in a decisive victory for Napoleon had he consented to employ the guard. But he probably already viewed his position so far from France with secret anxiety and would not risk impairing the efficiency of that splendid body. As it was, a bare victory was won at the frightful cost of not less than 30,000 men to each side, and Kutuzov retreated during the night, leaving Moscow at the mercy of the French. Napoleon entered the ancient capital of Russia on the 14th of September and there awaited once more proposals for peace from Alexander. But they came not, and Moscow itself was burned down by incendiaries. It was difficult to feed the army from day to day, and the Cossacks made foraging difficult. The total of the Grande Armée after its losses in detachments and in action was barely 90,000 men. The King of Naples was hard-pressed to maintain his line of outposts against Kutuzov, and suffered one severe reverse. Autumn was now nearly spent, and to delay longer was madness. On the 18th of October, Napoleon began his retreat. He attempted to follow a road to the south of that by which he had advanced, so as to pass through country not yet wasted by war. But Kutuzov barred the way, and for some days there was heavy fighting and marching. It appears probable that Napoleon could have forced a passage, but he dared not draw too largely on his reserves of ammunition and abandoned the road through Kaluga to return to that by which he had advanced, past the ghastly fields of Borodino, where the remains of thousands of their unburied comrades greeted the returning troops. In the first week of November, when midway to Smolensk, the Grande Armée was suddenly struck by the first wave of the Russian winter. The roads became frozen sheets of ice, and in a week nearly all the horses perished. The cavalry was dismounted and could no longer patrol and ward off the Cossacks. Many of the guns had to be abandoned, and there was no artillery to fight a big battle. The convoy was in large part unhorsed, and the army's supplies had to be abandoned. Food had been scanty enough from the first, but now the soldiers had little else than what they could find in the desolate villages they had already plundered in their advance. The marauders were cut down and captured by the Cossacks, and the army began to melt at a frightful rate. There was nothing to do now but to press forward, giving Kutuzov no time to catch up the fugitives before they reached Smolensk.
At that point were large magazines, and there Napoleon hoped he would be able to restore order and perhaps take winter quarters. But the disintegration and demoralization of the starving army made such alarming progress that Napoleon was only able to stay a few hours at Smolensk. The first column of the fugitives to reach the town threw themselves on the magazines, and before the last passed out, it had been completely pillaged and gutted. Just beyond Smolensk, Kutuzov succeeded in throwing his leading division across the road, cutting off the French rearguard under Ney. The marshal succeeded in holding his ground all day, crossed the Dnieper on the ice during the night, made a long detour, and finally rejoined the army a few days later. But his corps had dwindled away to less than a hundred men. The army was now reduced to some 15,000 men. It presented an appalling spectacle of misery and appeared doomed. At its head marched Napoleon clad in furs and supporting himself with a stick, his face covered with a beard, his expression set but curiously placid. Behind him marched a new formed corps in which the rank and file were captains or lieutenants, and officers of the highest rank acted as majors and captains. Then on the road came a few harnessed wagons with the emperor's papers and war chest, and behind him a long column of men in which only here and there was there any semblance of alignment or discipline. Towards the end came the stragglers, unarmed, limping, half frozen, some wandering away with ravenous looks, others dropping by the roadside. Thus marched the army in several divisions from Smolensk westwards. Between Smolensk and the river Berezina, a few days' march distant, was the most critical point of the retreat. To the north of Smolensk, Oudinot and Victor had been operating to cover the line of communications against a Russian army under Wittgenstein. They were now retreating before him to join Napoleon, with some 18,000 men in fair fighting condition. So here were two French armies converging on the Berezina, one from the east, the other from the northeast, each with a superior Russian force in hot pursuit. But there was a third Russian army marching from a totally different direction, the south. That army under the command of Chichagov was on the further side of the Berezina and reached its southern bank just in time to oppose the passage of the French. To make matters worse for Napoleon, the wave of cold was now spent, a thaw had set in, the ice was broken up, and the rivers were impassable. To steal a passage across the Berezina between the three converging Russian armies was now the only means of escape and Napoleon solved the problem on familiar lines. He demonstrated ostentatiously at the point where he did not mean to cross, and thus persuaded Chichagov to draw off his troops from the point he had decided on. Victor's and Udinot's corps were drawn up so as to hold off Wittgenstein and Kutuzov, and the long train of fugitives began to cross the bridges. The passages closed in disaster. Wittgenstein drove in the French rearguard long before the crowd of fugitives had finished crossing. Many of the stampeded mob were crowded into the river. 
The Russian artillery found them an easy target and, most horrible of all, the French rearguard corps, whose efficiency made them too precious to lose, received orders to force their way through to the bridge by firing on their disbanded and unarmed comrades. Last of all, the bridges were broken down amid the despairing shrieks of the wretched beings who saw in them their only avenue to safety. The tragic passage of the Berezina cost the French army about 18,000 lives, roughly one half of its strength. No sooner had the remnant of the army crossed than a second and more severe cold wave overtook it. The Russian pursuit, save that of the Cossacks, was now fairly distanced, but nature proved an even more terrible destroyer. The few remaining thousands struggled on, but hunger and cold killed the greater part. Every morning fewer men arose from the snowy bivouacs than had lain down the night before. Advancing supports fared no better than the exhausted men who had marched the whole weary way from Moscow. Two regiments of light horse of the Neapolitan Royal Guard, freshly arrived from the south, were nearly entirely destroyed in two nights without even seeing the enemy. At Gumbinin, near the frontier, Napoleon decided to leave the army for Paris, where his presence was urgently required. He handed over the command to the King of Naples, and wrote the famous 29th Bulletin of the Grande Armée, in which he acknowledged such parts of the catastrophe that had overtaken him, as it was useless to deny. But in what light did that great calamity, that direct and awful warning of nature as many thought it, appear to him on whose shoulders was its responsibility? He closed the bulletin with the words, The Emperor has never been in better health. The awful destruction and death and sorrow, the loss of so many brave lives, all counted but as an incident in the personal career of a soldier of fortune. On the 6th of December, the fugitives reached Wilna, still numbering 20,000 men. Footnote. The discrepancy in figures is only apparent. As the army retreated, it picked up some detachments left in garrison and met others advancing from the base. End of footnote. When Marshal Ney, the bravest of the brave, musket in hand, brought the rear guard into Königsberg some days later, he counted less than 1,000 men under arms. End of chapter 13. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa.